0: As we come back together this morning, we continue in our walkthrough, structured uh, by the rhythms of the lectionary readings. We are going through Corinthians, uh, as the lectionary does, and and we are hitting a text that is being read around the world, uh, as have all the texts that we've uh, read this morning, the the Psalms and the Scripture uh, from the New Testament in Luke, and then this text here in 1 Corinthians. The theme of Epiphany, of course, as we've talked about, is the the revelation both of Christ to the Gentiles. Christ is the king not only of the Jews, but in the implications of that being for the good of the whole world, riffing all the way back off of the glorious promise to Abram that he and his descendants would be what? A blessing to all the nations. And Christ is the fulfillment of that a king who will not disappoint and will extend the grace and power of his kingdom throughout the world. And in the midst of that, then, there is this revelation of this new thing, this evolution of a people defined by largely ethnic and largely a particular religious set of uh, of structures into this new thing called the church, which transcends, expands upon... The promise of Israel in a way that that shatters categories and yet stays true to the heart and the depth of God's revelation of who He is and the revelation of who we are and what we've been called to do. And so last week we looked at the importance for Paul of the common, the common good, And that Paul has been pressing against this notion that having a particular gift which may be wonderful and in some regards special is not the defining factor of one's worth. In fact, what defines the body of Christ is not how many special gifts we have, but the common reality that we have those created in the uniqueness of God who share a common spirit which allows them to do things that are quite uncommon in the world in which we live that there is a common spirit that binds us together and creates, through Christ, an equality that the world cannot possibly fathom. And what I mean by that is that even as we try and do equality apart from God, we inevitably find that it is still about power, it's still about how much intelligence or money you have. And so we see this in the ebbs and flows of our culture culture, Where there'll be a group that was ostracized and had no power, and then they begin to have power, and then inadvertently they become exactly the thing they used to hate. Because we're constantly not working towards actual equality, but in some ways, establishing security and power, because we are insecure beings. And so it's going to have to be this common spirit that provides a common ability to live with one another, not in the categories of power or prestige or wealth or beauty in the world, but in the common experience of a spirit that at the same time never denies the uniqueness of the individual created in the image of God. And now Paul presses hard into that as he talks about the body itself being built up. And so we pick up the story now, we pick up the narrative and the explanation from Paul in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, starting at verse 12, hear now God's word. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. And we have all been given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were to say, were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are uh, unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no such special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lack it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body. Think about that. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, who uh, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but eagerly desire the greater gift. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we do desire, though we do not understand all the implications, to be of one with you and therefore a unified body. We ask, Lord, that in the preaching of your word this morning, that your people might be built up as the body of Christ, both in their unique role and in the oneness that we have in you as the body of Christ, as a community of faith. And Lord, we ask that particularly, in a topic as ripe for abuse as this, that you would guard the preaching of your word, and that your people would be built up. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I I say that, I think most of you know me, there's, there's usually not much of a problem with false humility. And so when I say that this is a dangerous teaching. I say that because it really is. This, when we talk about the body of Christ, because of the reality of sin, it is inevitable that we've either experienced one kind of abuse or another of this doctrine. Either one that was so oppressive that in some ways it robbed us of our individuality or that of friends, our brains got turned off, and it was some sort of cultish. Uh, situation, or we've been so wounded by the church that we've all but left any sense uh, or hope that there could be such a thing as people gathering together, being a unified group, that I can only barely keep one toe in the water because if I fully commit, I know the worst thing could happen. And whether or not we use this text to either exemplify the reality that we do have that individual gifting and those individual opportunities or we stress the fact that those are really given in such a way that an entire body and community of faith can be benefited and built up, we still run this line of trying to, by the Spirit, hold up realities that, from a human perspective, are almost impossible to maintain. But I would encourage us that simply guarding ourselves against one abuse has the inevitable inevitable result of putting us in the ditch on the other side of the road. And that it is the great challenge of God's people to live by faith, guided by that one Spirit, acknowledging those ways in which things may get sideways, while at the same time expecting the Holy Spirit to intervene in such a way that as God's people move forward, we can in ever greater degrees live out of that reality of being a part of the body of Christ. I will say that, that uh, what Paul's talking about here is not this idea that has become popular in our particular culture, although I don't know about in other uh, parts of the church around the world. That is the notion that the body of Christ is so big and so mysterious and so spiritual that it is not really Paul's vision here to talk about an individual congregation but the notion of the church universal. I don't take that position. So, In case you were wondering how this sermon goes, I don't deny the unity of the church universal. I do believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. But I don't know that that's Paul's emphasis in this text. Now, what is his emphasis in this text? Well, let's go through it this morning. I love Paul. He just goes... Verse after verse, we'll roll through this. We're talking about one body, one spirit. We're going to talk about the fact that you cannot be a part, uh, cannot be a part of the body. You cannot not be a part of the body. Why can't I speak English? You cannot not be a part of the body. The body cannot be one thing. Point three. Point one, one body, one spirit. Point two, you cannot not be a part of the body. Point three, the body cannot be one thing. Fourthly, the body cannot deny its own connectedness. The body cannot deny its own connectedness. All parts of the body have value. And finally, there is a greater gift than any of the gifts that are listed which is the whole point of why we build a body, which will actually come around to the whole title of the sermon, Lord Willing and the Creek Don't Rise. One Body, One Spirit, 12 and 13. Again, yes, this has implications for the universal church, but Paul is talking at this moment to a congregation struggling in Corinth about what it means to hang together as a body of Christ in the midst of, of the cultural and social pressures that they brought into the church. They all came from somewhere. Whether they came from pagan cultic practices, Jewish practices where they were a little bit religious or atheistic, their whole breadth was in Corinth. And Paul is saying there is one body because there's one spirit. You are unified, not interestingly enough, by anything other and having been baptized by one spirit. Now again the important thing here is that what we learned in Acts is that there's not a particular ceremony that appears to give the holy spirit. That yes, the normal way in which one knows that one is a part of the body of Christ is through the normal act of the sacrament of baptism. That one is brought into the family and at that point we assume that there is a certain reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not magical. I can't make it happen. And what I love about Acts is it will not nail down how it happens. Do you remember when we went through the first couple of chapters of Acts? We found at some point that people had been baptized, even into the name of Jesus in Samaria, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. And so the apostles go off to go help the Samarians by baptizing them and giving them the Holy Spirit. And then the very next chapter... We find Philip, who was the guy who didn't seem to be able to baptize with the Holy Spirit in one chapter, goes down and meets an an Ethiopian, baptizes him along a road, and sends him off to Ethiopia without any additional services. When the Holy Spirit delights to come into a person's life is really kind of up to the Holy Spirit. But what Paul is saying is that because there is one Spirit, I don't want you to think that there's a magical incantation that constrains the Holy Spirit or a thing that makes the Holy Spirit go into somebody. That's a misunderstanding. What I do want you to know is that there is a normal way, which is either baptism or that reality of coming to the Lord's Supper, but that one cannot... Constrain the work of the Holy Spirit. The one body is not a human thing that we can control, but it is a spiritual thing that the Spirit determines and unites together. It just is simply a reminder that you and I are not in control of how the body is unified in the Spirit. The Spirit acts, it blows where it wills. But what it promises to do is as it comes into each believer, is to bind that believer to this one thing called the body of Christ and its local manifestations. Moving on to verses 14 and 16. Uh, there cannot, you cannot not be a part of the body of Christ. Again, it's understandable. There are so many ways in which people are wounded by the church. The church does many things wrong on large levels and on small levels. It is run by sinners Again, what we need to remind ourselves so often and we need to guard against as leaders in the church is presenting the notion that somehow we are a safe place in the general sense of that word. I love the word safe. I'd love to be a safe place. The problem is I'm here. Which means in some way or another, because I'm a fallen, broken human being, it's not going to be completely safe. Which is why repentance is a big part And so is forgiveness. I talk sometimes about how forgiveness is the coin of the realm. We are forgiven people, and therefore the way we interact with one another is through forgiveness. I will sin against you, you will sin against me in the body of Christ, and if we are not regularly exchanging forgiveness, we can easily build up anger and resentment and hurt. And sometimes that's because we really and truly have been victims. Sometimes we were overly sensitive, and sometimes we were completely insensitive. But the reality is, one cannot say, I am not a part of the body of Christ. There is no plan B. There is no such entity as a believer who does not exist within a local fellowship of community. This is why I'm pressing against this idea that Paul is primarily talking about, the universal church, without any necessity of being part of a local body of Christ. It just doesn't work or exist. I would love to have that category. There are many days when I'd like to embrace that category. But there is no such thing. There is no believer who is not a part of the local body of Christ. It is not so spiritual that it has no physical manifestations. Otherwise, there's no reason for Paul to write the letter to the Corinthians. It's hard for you all to get along. Clearly, you've hurt one another. The wealthy have hurt people, those with knowledge in chapter 8 have hurt people. We understand why you wouldn't want to get along. Y'all just go do your own thing. The good news is the Holy Spirit's there, and even though you don't experience it, just know that there's a unified body. It'd be a lot shorter letter. But that's not what Paul fights for. Letter after letter after letter. Don't stop meeting together. There is a physical manifestation of the Spirit's presence with you, and it's unity, not necessarily agreement, not necessarily always harmony, but there is unity because of one spirit. So there is no option. And if you have been hurt, I encourage you, let us know as leaders how you have been. We may not be able to address all of it. We may not, in the end, be able to even agree with your hurt. I, I, I wrote in the, the recent article that all feelings are Real. You are feeling something that's real. You may experience as you come into fellowship that not all those feelings are true. And some of your feelings about an event might not actually reflect what happened or completely. We never want to dismiss the feelings that someone has, they are real for you. But the reality is, like everything else, Feelings have been impacted by the fall and I get my feelings wrong sometimes. And I need people to come alongside me so that I can speak my feelings, have them both acknowledged as real hurts but also perhaps tempered that I might know what is true about the events that I have been through. That requires a body. If I am a foot laying off by myself, I will never experience the healing that comes from being a part of the rest of the body. The body cannot be one thing. This is the great heresy and tragedy that has regularly ravaged the church, which is we like to be around people like ourselves. Right? And There was actually a whole time in the 80s where we actually f- encouraged the idea of churches that were just full of people exactly like themselves. It's called the homogeneous principle. Since people are uncomfortable around people not like them, let's plant churches that are just people who are like each other. It has not been a raging success. It has created larger and larger communes, but at the same time it has created less and less impact in and through the world. What the world is not surprised about is that a bunch of people who agree with each other love to hang out with each other. The world can do that without Jesus. The question is, can people who aren't exactly like one another, socioeconomically, educationally, background in 15 other ways, can they learn how to do community? Now that would be entertaining. That is something the world might actually find different. That work of the Spirit, it has to be the work of the Spirit. And so we can't say, I'm an ear or I'm a foot. We can't plant churches that are only brains or hearts. We know what happens, right? When you plant all brain churches, you get reformed people isolated from the rest of the world. And when you plant all heart churches, you get people who sometimes act out of the love of God without the assurance of the truth of God, and they actually hurt more than they help those who need love and care. A whole heart church not anchored to the truths of God beyond simply love and the abstract can lead people down roads that are more wounding to them calling things that are sin, not sin, and not protecting people from the ravages of those sins. But when we're so afraid that our theology might get confused, that we become incredibly more angry and isolated and always arguing for the purity of our doctrine, we are as effective in spreading the kingdom as those who die sin at all. Neither one of us are terribly useful. You can't be one thing. We need people with hearts. We need people with brains. We need the hands and the feet and the ears and the tongue that the body might function well in every community that it is called to serve in. Each fellowship needing those different parts, even as they form the larger universal body of Christ. We cannot be one thing. And lest we think that is unlikely, please look at, look at recent history. The car has exacerbated our ability to drive past our own neighborhoods and go to some other church. Couldn't do it when you had a horse or you had to walk. You kind of had to end up fellowshipping with the people in a reasonable distance. Have we thought through the theological implications of what it's done to perish to community when we can so easily avoid those who are different than us? to go find some place to worship where they're like us. Paul seems to be arguing that that's a poor idea. The body cannot deny its connectedness. Right? So I can't say that I'm not a part of you. This is why I had that quote from Jerry Falwell Jr., last week in the worship folder. As much as I may disagree with his particular reading on the the usefulness of the poor, in that quote, what I can't say is he's not a part of the body. He's Trinitarian. We agree probably on 95% of theology and doctrine. Although I wish he hadn't said that in public. And there'd be nothing more satisfying than to sort of write this person off that I disagree with politically or theologically, or write off another group and and throw off anathemas. The reality is that's not the way Christ functions. We are not that we don't have the ability to simply write off that we those we might find embarrassing or to somehow distance ourselves. The body cannot deny its connectedness. It may prove, interestingly enough, that somebody's not a part of the body. And that is actually in the text. It may prove that. But what it says in verses 21 through 23 is very interesting. Paul's language here is the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that think less honorable, we treat them with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. There is this reality that we cannot declare another so easily to be outside. But that we strive for that unity. And we lean in and we bother having a conversation with somebody that we may disagree with in their interpretation of Scripture, but to do so, well, as we'll find out at the end of the sermon, I'm not good at holding this to the end, in the spirit of love which is the whole reason the body of Christ is manifest, but I need to hurry. All parts have value and share in the in the corporate glory of God, even as they are individually organized and respected and honored. Verses 24 to 26. Uh, again, uh, the scholars tell us that Paul has in mind here the, the chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, where he talks about those who have knowledge. And they do have knowledge. They know... That actually, because idols are just idols, the food sacrificed to them really doesn't matter. Like, there's no mojo about that meat. And they're actually wise in saying, you know what, I don't care if my butcher had a little ceremony before he butchered the ox. The ox meat is just ox meat. God created it and nothing's happened to it that's weird. But there were those who were so concerned because of their experience that they were saying, look, we really shouldn't eat that meat. What if there's a demonic power over it? Or whatever their considerations exactly were. The knowledge people knew. But what Paul says is be gentle with those who don't know. Don't use your knowledge to divide the body of Christ. Don't look down on those who don't know. Treat them gently. He didn't deny the truth of what they knew but he encouraged them not to divide the body, but to bring those folks along, at the very least, to care for them gently. And then in the next chapter, well, not the next chapter, a couple of chapters later, in 11, the whole debacle uh, around the Lord's Supper where the rich and the poor are not coming together as one, but the rich are enjoying a great feast and the poor are going away hungry. And there's no what? Sense of the unity of the body of Christ. What is Paul's beef? Paul's end argument is don't come to the Lord's Supper if you don't even know what the body is. And that is not a weird esoteric notion of what happens to the Lord's Supper and the bread and the wine or some mysterious understanding. It is, do you not see that all your brothers and sisters in this community of faith are the church and they're not divided by finances so you don't put the poor in one section of the church and the rich in another? You can't discern the body of Christ. The body of Christ is one. You have chopped it up. You have missed the unity. That's why you're going to the Lord's Supper. And some of you are falling asleep because you don't know you're one. And you've broken it down by finances. No small thing, apparently, to fail to recognize the unity of the body. All of the parts have value. None of the earthly qualifications and standards that will import themselves into the church about what we see as valuable have any bearing here. This is a different, different community. And lest we underestimate how radically different it is, just realize how often it is easier for us to go back to the rhythms of the world Pastors are more valuable if they have larger churches. People are more valuable if they have more uh, opportunities to heal people and see those prayers answered. People are more beautiful, eloquent, wealthy, skilled. Gosh, it's easy to go back to the categories of the world. It is full-court press to stay conscious of the unity we have in the body of Christ and to encourage one another in that equality and to rightly care for all of the different components and pieces and living entities within its body. But why build this body? Why go through all of this pain and suffering and aggravation? Because it is, of times, it's also glorious and wonderful. Why? Because of the love of God. It is the manifestation of the love of God to be able to put a community of faith together that loves one another, not based on affinity, not based on similar uh, political or socioeconomic or racial categories or what have you, but that the love of God that transcends knowledge, that transcends prophecy, that transcends wisdom, that comes together and says, this is what love looks like. It speaks truth in love. It does. If there is an illness in the body, Go and address that illness. And it cares for it and it restores and heals. It is careful to guard itself and encourage it. all done in the love of God, which transcends our emotional understanding of love, which expands an understanding of love in the abstract into a love in the concrete that speaks truth for the compassion and care and benefit of the body. And if I begin to believe that actually when you suffer, I suffer, just as parts of the body suffer, as one part is hurting, is my love for you not going to be that much more driven for the whole to care, to know, to come alongside? It is for love that the body of Christ is put together, both as a manifestation of God's love and because of God's love for you as an individual. It's why the crescendo of this section is 13, that beautiful passage of love, which we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, we just desire in ever greater ways to know what it is for you to say that it is not good for us to be alone. You said it when you spoke to Adam in his singleness without another human present. Lord, Eve was the first answer. The body of Christ is a fuller answer to the problem of being alone. We ask, that you would in ever greater degrees knit us together, that in you we might not be alone, but know the goodness of being in fellowship with you and your body. In Christ's name, amen.